Hello and welcome to The Zeros. And if this is the first episode of The Zeros you've ever listened to, The Zeros are a set of years, namely the years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero. And what we do is explore the popular culture, the cinema, television, the music, the fashion of these zero years and ask, do they belong more to the years gone or the years to come? So in series one, we're talking about 1990 and we're asking if all this popular culture is more 80s-ish or 90s. Now, what you're listening to is one of our bonus episodes, which aren't about popular culture, they're about straight history. And in this episode, we are looking at one of the most important events, not just of 1990, but of the 20th century, which was in February 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from jail after 26 years of being a political prisoner and went on to lead the negotiations that ended apartheid in South Africa. And in this episode, I'm speaking to an absolutely outstanding expert on the subject, the journalist John Carlin. John Carlin has been a journalist since the early 80s, and in 1989, he took over as the South Africa Bureau Chief of the English Independent and he was there as a front row member of the audience of a major period of human history, namely the transition from one of the most disgusting regimes in human history to the imposition of genuine democracy in South Africa for the first time ever. Inclusive, non-segregated democracy in a country that, as Nelson Mandela described it, had been the skunk of the world. Now, John went on to write two books about his time in South Africa. One is called Knowing Mandela because he got to know Mandela quite well, as you'll hear when he talks, which is a brilliant book, a lovely, very, very enjoyable, easy to read book. And the other, the one that he is more famous for, is a book called Playing the Enemy that was then turned into the Clint Eastwood film Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. This actually was the first episode of the zeros that we ever recorded but it's been sort of sitting gathering digital dust on the shelf waiting for the right time to release it which i think is now um i had an outstanding conversation with john i really really just loved listening to everything he had to say and yes i hope you enjoy it too so let's hear what john has to tell us John, we always ask all of our expert contributors to begin with a time travel thought experiment to give us a sense of the change between the 80s and 90s and where our zero year fits in. So what I'm going to ask you to imagine is the experience of a young woman in a township outside Johannesburg in 1986 during a South Africa Defence Force raid on the township, suddenly falling through a time warp to the 27th of April 1994 to election day. Give us a a sense of just how different her experiences would be before and after she falls through that time warp. I think what I'll do, if you'll allow me, we'll transport this young woman to Crossroads Township outside Cape Town, a place where there was a particularly extreme conflict between the local black population and and the security forces. And let's imagine this young woman is a Catholic a parishioner of a very small Catholic church in Crossroads Township, run by an English priest 
called Father Jerry Lorimer. We're actually going to switch the attention slightly to Father Jerry Lorimer, away from this young woman, although let's imagine her by his side. Father Jerry Lorimer is one of the most extraordinary people I've met. He was uh, an Englishman who was married with two daughters, and his wife died when he was about 50. And he was a devout Catholic, and he decided to become a priest. And he decided to go, as he told me, for the most arduous strand of the priesthood, the Jesuits, which required rather more years of study than any other priesthood outfit in the Catholic Church. Anyway, so he did as he became a priest and he said, where do you want to go in the world? He said, I want to go somewhere really tough. Okay, how about Crossroads Township? Where there's all hell is being let loose now in the 80s between black protesters and, and the security forces. So they said, sure, you go down there. And he learned the local language, the language of Mandela, which is Cosa. I defy you to pronounce it. Cosa. And he learned it so well that he said his mass in and he spoke to his parishioners and delivered his sermons in that language. I actually went to one of his masses. It was a little kind of hut chapel that he had, maybe 20 people. The locals called him uh, the Cosa word for joy. They, they adored him. Anyway, it was just routine. It was almost like a sort of nightly or daily theatre, the same play being reproduced in these standoffs and then clashes between the security forces and the local activists. So let's just go back to one particular moment, precisely in 1986, the year that you identify, when there was a funeral for three young black men who'd been killed in the previous protest. And there was a big march through Crossroads, several thousand people, three coffins at the head, and Father Jerry by the coffins. And inevitably, as part of this daily ghastly theatre, there's a police line and the marchers have to stop and on a loudspeaker the police commander in charge says you have two minutes to disperse or we shall open fire. They do not disperse, they stand stock still as they always did in these circumstances and sure enough the police start blasting first with rubber bullets, then with tear gas and then with live bullets at which point the coffins are dropped on the ground and everybody disperses and runs off and people are wounded and people are killed in preparation for the next funeral march protest. Except the only person that doesn't move is Father Jerry Lorimer, who stands by the coffins, holds a crucifix aloft, shakes it at the police line, and shouts, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. That was that's the sort of stuff that was going on oh, in 1986, man. South Africa, in black townships up and down the land. So therefore, if you were to tell Father Jerry Lorimer or his young woman parishioner that eight years later, in you know that very same spot, they'd actually be queuing up in orderly fashion to cast their vote, to cast a vote that would be as valid as the vote cast by their white South African compatriots, they would have said you were completely out of your mind. Father Jerry Lorimer was a devout Catholic who had a great firm attachment to the central Christian notions of faith, hope, and charity. But in 1986, he would have confessed that his hope was running pretty thin. As was the world at that time. It possessed my early 11, 12-year-old political consciousness a great deal. But yes, I, I felt a similar hopelessness, as I suppose you would have felt even three, four years later when you arrive in South Africa from your brief in Argentina and Mexico, where you'd spent most of the 80s. So so you arrive in South Africa, I think, in early 1989? 
Is that right? January 1989. And so you watched a very tumultuous 1989 unfold around the world from South Africa. When we talk about hope and how much hope we, we can have at different times, what was your state of mind, your sense of hope for the future that year as you watched things like Tiananmen Square and the Panama invasion fall of Berlin Wall? How, how did that all filter through your... Well, I, I came from, basically, I spent the previous six years covering the wars in Central America, which was sort of almost the last real hot wars of the Cold War. You know, that's where they were being played out. The Soviets and the Cubans supported one band and the Americans the other. That was the world that I came from and there was no seemingly easy resolution of the wars in Guatemala, El Salvador and Nicaragua that I covered at that time. Although in fact in due time, because of the ending of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, negotiation processes did unfold and that did end up in peace. But I should say that even though there were all these amazing amazing events unfolding. Yes, the Berlin Wall, Tiananmen Square, and so forth. South Africa was so all-absorbing, and I was working so damn hard as a journalist there, that I only sort of, you know, glanced sideways every now and again at what, what was going on elsewhere. And the fact is that, you know, while there were momentous, momentous, earth-changing things going on elsewhere, there didn't seem to be any prospect at all in 1989 of things changing in South Africa, and that changed virus arriving down at the southern tip of Africa. It just didn't seem possible at all. And in fact, during 1989, my job as a journalist there, as a correspondent for The Independent, consisted of observing, being an eyewitness at precisely the kind of scenes I've just described that have been going on in 1986. You just sat there as a journalist, or you stood there watching it every now and again, ducking, or every now and again, hiding behind a tree or a wall because people started to open fire. But it was the same grim theatre repeated time after time. And in fact, the previous correspondent of The Independent had left because, ironically, he had just got fed up of covering a story that was so endlessly repetitive in a very grim sort of way, and so seemingly utterly hopeless and bereft of any possibility of change. So, as it turned out, he blew it. And I got lucky because I was able to witness this extraordinary, you know, the next four or five years where where it was just so, so fantastic. And above all, of course, for me, personally as a journalist, the possibility that that I was granted of observing the Mandela phenomenon from the sort of front row seat that one gets as a as a journalist. Let's get into that. And I was very struck when I was reading your book, Knowing Mandela, which was a follow-up to the famous book, Playing the Enemy. In chapter two, you delve very deeply, really, into 24 hours of time on the, between the 11th and 12th of February, 1990. And I would recommend that everyone read both your books. But can you give us a, a synopsis then of that momentous day of Mandela's release and what a roller coaster that was between his release and this press conference on the morning of the 12th of February. In my first recollection, completely personal and egocentric, I said it was the busiest working time of my journalistic life. I just didn't stop. I remember during the, that period, you know, I, I would fill, once I filled the entire front page of the Independent with stories from South Africa, and most days I filled 90% of it. But as for that 24 hours, yes, 11th of February, 1990, the day of Mandela 
Mandela's release. I mean, absolute, complete pandemonium, you can imagine. I mean, all the crowds were out in there, tens of thousands, and seemed to be tens of thousands of journalists from all over the world there too. And, and Mandela was, you know, came out, he emerged with that sort of fantastic beaming smile of his and uh, his fist in the air, but instantly conciliatory. In fact, was it, he emerged from prison and it was a friend of mine who was a white South African journalist who dressed up in a suit and tie and managed to, to get very, very close to where Mandela was when he actually took his first steps out of prison. And Mandela saw him, and you know, he was surrounded by black people, and Mandela went straight to him and shook his hand. It was a white guy, a white South African, you know, immediately sort of setting the sort of tone or striking a sort of keynote for what he was going to do from then on. Anyway, it was all very chaotic, and eventually he ended up at the main square in Cape Town, delivered a speech that actually I found distinctly underwhelming. Much of it was actually quoting the last speech he gave in his trial back in 1964, which is all very well, but you would have thought, you know, he might have moved on. We then discovered later on that the speech had been written by African National Congress people and it hadn't been his own work. But I remember going to bed on the night of the 11th of February thinking, oh my God, this is depressing. I mean, the world has been clamoring for Mandela's release for the last 10 years. He's supposed to be the redeemer, the savior. And he just seems like a sort of rather gray, dull, old man. I mean, that was my sense and I know it was shared by quite a lot of people. Anyway, this perception was to be roundly disabused early next morning, 12th of February, when he gave his first press conference at the beautiful home on the foothills of Table Mountain, the beautiful home of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, another great hero of, um, that South Africa has produced, and also another Nobel Peace Prize winner. And it was a lovely day. It was February. It was summer in South Africa. And the world's press, we all gathered there. I mean, there must have been about 250 journalists. Most of them were people who were household names in their own countries, you know, famous TV news personalities, Jeremy Paxman type equivalents all over the world. And Mandela arrived in the garden. This was held in the garden, uh, like I say, on the foothills of Table Mountain. Flowers. Mandela appeared. It was like the setting for one of these, you know, outdoor Shakespeare summer plays. And and Winnie Mandela and Nelson Mandela, they, they appeared like the sort of happy king and queen at the end of a Shakespeare comedy when everybody, you know, gets married and everybody's happy and in love. And it was just all so sort of idyllic. Still, he sat down and, and I remember him looking at all the microphones and all the cameras with a certain bemusement. When he'd gone into prison, there was no TV in South Africa. Now there was this artillery of TV cameras facing him. But, you know, he seemed to take it in his stride. He sort of shrugged and looked around, looked confused, but then sort of, again, delivered this fantastic sort of smile that he had, a smile that could light up a football stadium. And each of us who asked questions, we had to identify ourselves by our name and the medium that we represented. I asked a question about only about 12 of us that got to ask questions. And I remember that I was immensely impressed by the answer that he gave. It just sort of almost immediately did away with this perception I had the night before that he was a bit of a you know befuddled old, old geezer. I said, look, you know, you, you say that you're now about to enter into a process of dialogue with the government with a view to you know, ending apartheid and persuading the white government to relinquish power voluntarily. This seems massively unlikely. Do you have some kind of a plan? And I expected a long-winded, complicated response. And he gave me a very, very short response. He said, what we must do is reconcile white fears with black aspirations. It was perfect. You could inscribe it on a, in a wall. An absolutely brilliant synthesis of this entire sort of massively complex exercise that clearly lay ahead of him. But the most significant thing, or, or the thing that stays most with me of that press conference was when an Afrikaans journalist, you've got to remember that the Afrikaners were the people who invented apartheid, who enforced apartheid, and he was a political editor of a newspaper called Die 
ago that was right-wing, even by Africana standards, that had always been vociferously against releasing Mandela. Back in 64, had been in favor of executing him. And this guy, who's a political editor, has the gumption, you've got to salute him for that, to stand up and say, my name is, I think it was something like Van der Westhuizen, and I am the political editor of the Burger. Whereupon, there was a sort of massive intake of breath amongst the gathered journalists, thinking, my God, you know, how's Mandela going to respond? How did Mandela respond? With this big, beaming smile. Mr. Van der Westhuizen, what a pleasure to meet you in person. I have been reading you with keen interest for many years now. It was quite brilliant, you know. It, 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 it comes from him spontaneously, but it's also canny political calculation. I mean, what's his mission? He's going to win over the whites. He's going to persuade them to relinquish power. He's going to persuade them that by relinquishing power to the black majority, it's not going to signify the end of their lives, the end of their culture, you know, the, the apocalypse. And and that was the beginning of what became, you know, an extraordinarily successful wooing of the white press generally, and the Afrikaans press in particular, that, that he said about almost immediately in, in, in the following days. And of course, via the, the media, you get to the masses of, of the people. At the end of that press conference, something extraordinary happened. The, the journalists, we all broke out into spontaneous applause. Now, we never do this with politicians. You might do it perhaps with some film star or football player. But, I mean, we're supposed to be objective, for God's sake. You know, we don't do this. We could not repress the human being within that was stronger than our journalistic personas. And we just had to applaud. Because by the end of this press conference, it didn't last much more than 40 minutes or so. It was clear that, you know, whatever perceptions the likes of myself had had the night before had been entirely misplaced. And I wrote an article, I can show evidence of it, which was published the next morning the independence saying I've just been in the presence of the greatest political leader I had ever seen or would ever see. Wow, wow. I've spent the last couple of weeks reading both your books and you convey that with such power. You know, you really do evoke the impact he had and you interviewed an amazing list of characters in this drama around him. Do you want to speak a little bit more about his time in jail and about his relationship with his Afrikaans jailers and his journey to being a champion of African culture to his own followers? His 27 years in jail were like a sort of massive hyper doctorate to which he submitted himself a self-learning exercise in preparation for what he always believed somehow against all logic would be the day when he would be released because he'd be given a life sentence and it was a seemed to be a life sentence that he was going to die in jail. But he somehow knew he was going to get out. He somehow knew the day would come when the white government would be prepared to negotiate. And he prepared for it almost from day one in his little tiny, tiny cell in Robin Island, this sort of Alcatraz off the off the coast of Cape Town in the South Atlantic. And the, the key thought goes back a lot further for two and a half thousand years to the Chinese war philosopher Sun Tzu, who said that the critical element in battle, in war, was to know your enemy. Mandela decided that war wasn't going to work. He thought it was going to work. It'd be a big mistake. He was completely outgunned. He knew he'd have to resort to political means to achieve his, his goal of ending apartheid and establishing democracy in South Africa. So he started preparing right away. Know your enemy. So what did he do? He was allowed you know, a limited number of books to read. Obviously, he wasn't going to get you know Das Kapital by Karl Marx or the works of Lenin. But they did allow him to read 
Afrikaans history books and, and the history of white South Africa. So he learned about the great battles that, you know, the Afrikaners had waged against the Zulus, against his own people, the Khorzas, the Khorzas, against the British and the Anglo-Boer War at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. He learned that. And he also learned Afrikaans, which he hadn't spoken before. It's one of this about 11 official languages now in South Africa. You have to, you know, know your enemy. So start by learning his bloody language. But his fellow political prisoners said, you know, Nelson, what the hell are you doing? Learning the oppressor's language. I mean, what is this? He said, just leave me alone. I've got my, my plan. So just, just let me let, let me let me do it. And so on he proceeded. And he and he befriended his jailers, in particular, uh, the guy who literally every night turned the key on his cell, a little guy who I got to know called Christo Brand, with whom he, he developed an astonishing friendship. First of all, he practiced their fracas, which was you know very handy, but they developed uh, an extraordinary friendship. And you know, this guy wasn't remotely well educated. I think he'd left school at 11 or 12 or something. And Mandela said, No, you must study. You know, you have a fine mind, Christo. You must do more to get ahead. He would even write letters to Christo Brown's wife and say, Listen, I tell your husband that he must study, must educate. He doesn't do it. Please, you push him because I know he has great potential. Anyway, and they, they established this quite fantastic relationship. I mean, I, I've interviewed Christo Brown, you know, after Mandela left prison, and it was a complete love affair. And Christo Brown was very gracious too. He returned Mandela's generosity and, and respect. I mean, in fact, Mandela was the prisoner, but Christo Brown, the jailer, regarded him with awe and admiration. Imagine this for a moment, being in prison, especially in a remote island, for heaven's sake, and you're going to be there for years and years and years. One of the things that's really awful about that experience, which it only occurred to me once I spoke to Christo, was that you never see children. You never, ever, you know, let alone touch them. You do not see children. And so Christo Brand had his first baby a few years into Mandela's imprisonment. And Christo Brand did something incredibly dangerous himself. He could have gone into terrible trouble. He smuggled his little white baby, Africana baby, into the prison. Oh my goodness. So that Mandela could hold the baby. You know, he maintained that he told me that, that Mandela had shed a few tears when he held this little white baby. Imagine, imagine the power of that photograph. You know, if they'd had mobile phones in those days to do instant photographs. Mandela in prison, cradling a little white baby with tears in his eyes. And so, in a way, Christo Brand was his looking at it much more pragmatically and politically. Christo Brand, the man who turned the lock on Mandela's cell every night, was Mandela's first guinea pig in political negotiation. And he wooed him and successfully. And then Mandela expanded this to other jailers who all fell into line. You know, there's three or four of them who to this day waxed lyrical about the, the wonderful rapport they had with Mandela in jail. And he extended it even to the head of the prison. And after a while, Mandela became almost you know, the head of the prison himself, despite the fact that every night he was locked in his cell. So his time in prison, he never looked back on it with bitterness. I mean, his, his one great regret, as he said in that first first press conference after his release was that he could not be there by the side of his family who suffered a great deal, who were oppressed and, and, and bullied and, and jailed. But apart from that, which is, you know, a significant thing, he saw the experience of the university, they, they used to refer to Robin Island as the university, the political prisoners. And he learned a lot and he taught the younger prisoners as they came by, as the years came, went by. And it was above all an extraordinary preparation for, for when the day came to sit down and negotiate a peace transition of power. I think one of the things we want to do in this series is show that where something emerges into the public consciousness, an event or a piece of culture, it's been bubbling under the surface for years. And when it emerges 
like the emergence of Mandela from from jail, that what we had had was a myth of a man throughout the 80s. The Free Nelson Mandela movement exploded and it was an extremely clever focusing in on one individual one man i think in the in the in the film with idris elba not not the uh, invictus film but the more recent film he says to his daughter what about walter what about all the other prisoners and she said we can't fit all those names on a badge he became a totem a, a symbol to put it sort of very bluntly and slightly cynically it was a very clever marketing campaign to personalize i mean it was very well done but in the end of course when the myth became man it turned out the man actually was a myth after all he was a, he was a legend but what we didn't see i think throughout the late 80s and the Wembley birthday party that whole time and the boycotts and the the struggle in the Commonwealth. What we didn't see was that Mandela was already leading those negotiations in a very transformed prison experience he was having in the 1980s when when they moved him from Robben Island. That's terribly important. The government had this sort of two-track policy, I mean, almost sort of bipolar on the one hand, extreme repression in the townships and detaining tens of thousands of people and keeping them in jail without trial and all the scenes that I described before of clashes in the township but at the same time they said let's also give this other track a try let's let's start talking to Mandela and so the Minister of Justice Kubi Kutsia was the first person to talk to him in prison and I think starting in 87 I believe it was he must have met with the Minister of Justice about 12 times but much more interesting really he met with a head of national intelligence a man called Neil Barnard who at that time in the late 80s was quite possibly being regarded as the most sinister man in the world I mean if there was one issue in which everybody agreed, even in the Cold War, you know, Soviets and Americans alike, was that apartheid was, was a crime against humanity, as the United Nations called it. So that the head of national intelligence in South Africa was just a sort of incarnation of evil, as far as the world was concerned. Mandela had 65 or 66 meetings before his release with Neil Barnard, the head of national intelligence. And they were sounding him out. They were trying to see, I mean, if we release this guy, if we bow to all this international pressure, is he going to let slip the dogs of war, or is he actually going to do what he says he's going to do, which is try and talk peacefully and rationally. And I interviewed both these two men, the Minister of Justice, Kubi Kutsia, and the head of apartheid intelligence, Neil Barnard, some years later, maybe eight years later, after Mandela had become president. And Kubi Kutsia, the Minister of Justice, imagine what a misnomer, Minister of Justice in South Africa. He was also Minister of Justice and prisons, for heaven's sake. So he was actually Mandela's ultimate jailer. And when I spoke to Kubi Kutsia about Mandela, he wept. He wept in recollection of Mandela's greatness. I remember one particular thing he said. He said, you know, I'm a student of the classics. And for me, Nelson Mandela embodies the great Roman virtues of gravitas, honestas, and dignitas. And as he said it, tears were flowing down his cheeks. It was just utter love. And it, and it was a combination of Mandela's immense charm and charisma, plus the integrity that shone through. Plus, of course, all that hard work Mandela had done to prepare himself to talk to these guys, to speak in their language, to, to refer to their 19th century heroes with admiration. And then I, I interviewed Neil Barnard, whom I, I spent many hours with him. Neil Barnard was, was a guy who I think was sort of biologically incapable of shedding tears. So it wasn't quite as dramatic visually as, <laughs> as interviewing Kobe Kutsia, the justice minister. But every time he referred to Mandela, he did not call him Mandela or the president or or anything, he referred to him always as the old mm. man, as if he were talking about his dad. And Neil Barnard, you know, the coldest man who ever lived, absolutely succumbed also to Mandela's combination of charm, integrity, and intelligence. 
I've been thinking a lot as I've read your books and I watched Invictus and I watched the Idris film as well. And just constantly I keep coming back to huge intellect, huge kindness. Like the combination of those two things is what struck me from everything, the whole picture you painted. And by using the experience of all these people, that's just what you really put into me that I'd never truly got the full measure of this man on, until I have started delving in. I'm going to dip very, very briefly back into the Cold War. Just a very quick aside before we get on into talking about the early 90s. The fall of the Berlin Wall, I know that it wasn't totally critical. I know that both the handing over to de Klerk was more important than Mandela's release, but did it help because National Party had always used the Cold War as an attempt at a fig leaf for the wickedness of apartheid, that they were actually fighting communism? Did it help? It was actually very important. It was very important. And it it was more than a fig leaf. The apartheid regimes had this Afrikaans phrase or two words, swart gefa which means black danger. They talked about the black danger. That was their great fear. But they also talked about the communist kafar, the communist fear, which for them was went hand in hand with the possibility of black rule, of black people being allowed to vote. Because, you know, don't forget, apartheid was a system where 88% of the population who were not white did not have the vote. And so the fall of the Berlin Wall definitely played a role in persuading the white government to release Mandela and explore talks. There was definitely a decrease of tension, a decrease of the anxieties. So the timing of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, the year before Mandela's release, was was definitely fortuitous and definitely helpful. It's easy looking back through history to see that Y follows X and Z comes after, that you see history down the path of where we are now. And I think what's so important about both your books and why I really recommend people who have been interested in this read them is how much you put the reader in the peril and the violence and the horror of the time between Mandela's release and the events of the day of the of the Rugby World Cup. Can you tell us a bit about who the bitter enders were and also a bit about what the ANC called at the time the, the third force and the, the sort of relationship, the very, very cosy relationships? Yeah, you know, the third force was my speciality subject. Let me just say first that, yes, you're right in your, in your, your premise that I think the people, so far as they look back at that time at all, they just assumed that Mandela came out of jail, they sat down, they talked, and you know, not long after that, apartheid was all over and Mandela was president. But it was actually a very, very tortuous and bloody four years between Mandela's release and him becoming president in 1994. You had this, as I, I used the word bipolar before, well, South Africa was a bipolar country, and I was living as a journalist, bipolar life, because almost every day I would turn up at some township around Johannesburg, where the worst of the violence was going on. I start the day covering the aftermath of some massacre, and seeing dead bodies and interviewing you know, a mother whose son is lying speared in the in the corridor of a little home in Soweto. And it was the worst violence in South Africa that had been seen. I mean, far worse than what, what I was describing earlier in the 1980s, at the time when there were sort of states of emergency and so forth. It was the worst violence in terms of people killed since the Anglo-Boer War, you know, 90 years earlier. The bodies were, were piling up. So that was going on. And what I mean by bipolar is I'd say I, I, I'd cover the the massacre in the morning and in the afternoon I'd be at what they call the World Trade Center this building near Johannesburg Airport where delegations of the government of the African National Congress Mandela's African National Congress were meeting having civilized discussions on how they might change the constitution and ease the way towards uh, the end of apartheid it was it was an astonishing you know two parallel world worlds in, in the same place and what was going on was that the third force it's a very complicated thing to explain I am a world authority 
on this subject. I wrote a hell of a lot about that and I got into a lot of trouble for it. And in fact, I, I know for a fact that the sort of the main police hit squad pondered seriously assassinating me. I did a lot of work on this. Yeah. Um, there was a guy called Eugene de Kock, Colonel Eugene de Kock, who was the, the head of the main police hit squad, who was known even by his own people as prime evil. <laughs> prime evil. And I met him once. I mean, I could go on about this at great length. I'll, I'll spare you the details, but it was an extraordinary meeting that we had in a cafe in Pretoria. But then a friend of mine sometime later met him at the police club in Pretoria having a few drinks and the guy revealed to her in his cups two things. One, that he'd been listening into my phone conversations and he actually said to her, oh, because I used to talk to this woman, used to, she, she, she was also a journalist. We'd worked together on trying to get to the bottom of the so-called third force, which I'll come in a moment. And she said, yes, do you remember the time when you said this to John? And he replied that and this, you know, it was really quite sinister. And then, you know, after a few more drinks, he says, yes, we had a meeting of our hit squad and uh, to examine whether to kill John Carlin or not. And as you see, hopefully they decided not to because had they wanted to, they wouldn't have had any trouble whatsoever. This Eugene de Kock character who was headed this very, very, very well hidden hit squad was part of what we call the third, what Mandela called the third force, which was sinister elements within the security forces that were very deliberately not just carrying out assassinations, but actually to, to greater effect in terms of bloodshed and death, were stoking violence in the townships between different factions, basically between the right-wing Zulu group in Qatar that was just doing the paid work of the apartheid regime. I can't exaggerate what a vile organization it was. And they were stoking the violence and facilitating the violence, protecting those who were going after the local township residents who were almost to a man and woman, African National Congress supporters, and supplying arms to Inkata, this sort of right-wing Zulu, pro-white, effectively anti-black Zulu outfit. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. And so that was what was going on, and that was the third force. And then on top of that, in 1993, with a year to go before the, the elections, we see the creation of this thing called the Afrikaner Folks Front, the Afrikaners People's Front, which was basically an army that was going to stop democracy and, and go to war and start a civil war. And it was led by a man called General Constant Filyun, who had been the head of the South African Defense Force between, I think it was 80 and 86, a legendary figure among white South Africans, all of whom male South Africans had army experience. They revered this character. And this guy quite openly gave speeches. I was there, present at many of them, where he said, you know, we, we cannot allow democracy to take hold here. We have to protect white South Africa and we'll go to war. And it was calculated that this General Constantin had something like 30 or 40,000 people ready to follow him, all of whom had guns, all of whom had military training. So imagine, you know, the damage that, say, the IRA did with far, far fewer numbers without initial military training, without their own weapons. Imagine what 30, 40,000 guys bent on destroying the democratic transition might have achieved. And these are what, what you rightly describe as the bitter enders. And the amazing thing is how Mandela managed to drain the bitterness out of those holes. You go from that to both Villon and Butelezi being in that first democratically elected parliament and both one round to allowing Mandela to be president without any further attempts to stoke the civil war. Yeah, I mean, Butelezi, the person you just mentioned, he was Mangasutu Butelezi, the head of Inkata, who I shall always regard as one of the most despicable human beings I've ever 
ever encountered. Not only was he initially in a clandestine way collaborating with the apartheid regime, finally he actually openly came out and appeared in photographs with the far right, you know, the people who were to the right of the white government that actually wanted change. He made common cause with them right almost to the very end, to the point of the election. In the case of General Constant Fillion, who, I mean, it, it is one of the most amazing stories of, of many amazing stories in that Mandela time, that you know, this guy was openly calling for war, basically against Mandela and everything Mandela had striven for all his life. And Mandela invited him to have a, a meeting at his home. And to the general's credit, he accepted. And he showed up at Mandela's home. And Mandela deployed all of those skills and native-born talents that he deployed against the justice minister and the intelligence minister, and also managed to woo the person who stood as the biggest, most dangerous obstacle right at the end of his life's quest. And, and he, dis, he quite literally disarmed the general. The general arrives at Mandela's home, and to his surprise, it's not some servant, but Mandela who opens the door, greets him with a big smile, speaks to him in his language. And already, even before they've sat down, the general is all of his kind of everything he's been building up in his life, his whole vision of Mandela is beginning to crumble. And they sit down. Mandela said, look, before they had each had their little delegations, they were going to sit around the table. And they said, so, General, why don't you and I sit down for a minute before the group meets? And they sat down and a servant brought some tea and Mandela served the tea for you, asked him if he took milk, asked him if he took sugar. The general watched as Mandela pours the milk into his cup, puts the sugar into his cup, and it's just more and more befuddled and astonished. I, mean, I know I say this from having talked to the general, I'm telling you what the general said to me later. And Mandela said to him, listen, general, I understand that you are planning on going to war against my people. And the general said, yes, that's correct. He, he didn't beat about the bush, the general, he was a straight up guy. And Mandela said, well, look, you have the arms and the people who can use them, but we have the numbers and we'll have the international community supporting us. So I put it to you, general, that if you unleash this war of yours, it can only possibly end up with a piece of the cemeteries. Would you agree? The general says, I would agree. So, General, I put it to you, I think we should talk and not just talk today, continue talking and see if we can avoid what would be a dreadful thing for all South Africans, black and white. And they did. And they continued meeting. And three or four months later, the general thinks, this guy's great. <laughs> I trust him. When he says he's not going to expel white South Africans from the country or kill them, I believe him. When he says he'll be a president for all South Africans, I believe him. So he then, to the absolute amusement and horror of quite a lot of his followers he says it's all over guys war's over put away your weapons and not only that he actually created his uh, political party and, and legitimized the new dispensation by taking part in the first ever all-race democratic elections in South Africa in April 1994 he walked into that room thinking he was walking into the presence of the great Satan for Afrikaners well, yes of course I mean you, you've got to understand that Mandela was regarded by most white South Africans as their local version of Osama bin Laden or whoever the head of Islamic status, and they thought that because they've been programmed to view that way for, for decades by the South African propaganda apparatus. I tell you why I don't want to linger too long on rugby because I want everyone to read your book because it was for me. I think you say at the start that you can read it as a self help book. It's it's a lesson in how we should all live. So the book I'm talking about is playing the enemy. Well, it's a lesson maybe on how we should all live, yes, but I think slightly more narrowly, but importantly, I think it's a manual for political leaders everywhere, possibly dangerously so because it's a manual also for political leaders that may have nefarious intents. Politics is about persuasion. It's about seduction in the broader sense of the word seduction. It's about getting people to follow you and your message and to win hearts and minds. And Mandela was an absolute genius for this. 
He was just, you know, he was born to do this, like Lionel Messi is born to play football, Mozart to, to play music, or a fish to swim in the sea. Uh, certainly, there are 90 copies that I could happily send over to East Belfast to a building on a hill right now, but we won't go there. What was it about rugby that Mandela understood that he had to persuade a nation of millions to understand in order to lead to the transformative moment of the Rugby World Cup of 1995? Well, it's important always to bear in mind this key thought, as I expressed it now, that Mandela was born to politics as a fish is born to swim in the sea. He was a political animal, almost sort of literally a political animal. And he was continually seeking out to get people to follow him, to follow his path. And of course, the, the, the toughest nut to crack when he came out of jail, and indeed when he became president, was to, to get the white people on board, to accept him as a black man, but also as a legitimate president. And when he came to power in 1994, the absolute imperative of his presidency was to avoid the entirely likely possibility of a counter-revolution, of a white uprising. History shows there's a revolution, there's a counter-revolution. So he had to continue with this mission of wooing the whites. And in this case, he, he wooed the people in government. He wooed the general who wanted to go to war against, but he had to reach out to the, to the great mass of white people, get them on board too, because otherwise you'd have this ever-present possibility of war. And so he understands that rugby is an enormous point of pride and identity for white South Africans, but in particular, Afrikaners, who are 60% of the population and were the people most wedded to apartheid, and of course, in particular, male Afrikaners. You know, the nature of that society was that males ran the show. So that was the enemy to beat. And so rugby, there it was. Now, they agreed to host the World Cup one year after Mandela comes to power. Rugby was an absolute point of division because by the very same token that it was a point of pride and identity for white South Africans, especially male Afrikaners, it was a, an object of contempt and hate for most black South Africans for the very same reason that whites loved it so much. And so hosting a World Cup of South African soil one year into this young, baby, fragile democracy with enemies all around was really quite a risk. I mean, I think any ordinary politician when the World Cup came around, you know, in Mandela's place would have just hidden under the bed for a month and hoped the whole thing passes without too much incident and can get on with our lives. But where I think an ordinary politician would have seen alarm bells, Mandela saw an opportunity and he said, let's transform. That was his mission. Let's transform this symbol, powerful symbol of division in this utterly racial divided country. Let's transform it into a point of union, into a point of reconciliation. And so it came about. I mean, by the time the Rugby World Cup came around, one year into Mandela's presidency, and in particular by the time the Rugby World Cup final came around, what Mandela had achieved, with the help of the players, you know, who deserve a lot of credit, they, they, they play ball with him, politically speaking, what he achieved was something quite unprecedented. In the whole history of South Africa, since the arrival of the first white settlers in 1652, namely that black and white people in South Africa unanimously across the board, across the nation, shared one objective. This had never happened before. Shared one dream. South Africa winning the World Cup in this particular case. You know, we talked earlier about the myth and the man and the man becoming more than the myth. Every nation needs a founding myth. And if we see that a new nation took over from the jurisdiction of an old one in 1994, what I kept thinking was... This was its founding myth. Mandela had studied the founding myths of the African nation and understood how to weave a new founding myth into this new thing, the Rainbow Nation. That's exactly right. You know, what was that line? Who, who was it who said it? Einstein, that genius was 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. I think in the case of Mandela, maybe it was more like 10 or 20% inspiration, just this extraordinary natural-born talent that he had. He had charisma. Charisma is a sort of vast, vast self-confidence. That came, you know, out of the box. 
box. But he applied himself. And, you know, as I explained before, he, he, he did not waste his time in prison at all. In fact, you know, if he were alive now, he would tell you it was an immensely fruitful time of his life in which he, he, he laid the foundations for the peaceful transition of power from apartheid to, to democracy. And one phrase you use in both the books of yours I've read is the idea of the indispensable man. That if on the 11th of February 1990, a broken man or no release at all or a man long dead was what we had on the 12th of February 1990. Could you imagine anything like how the next five years would turn out? Could you imagine anything like that happening? It was when Mandela came out of prison on the 11th of February 1990, it was very hard to imagine he was going to pull off this mission he'd set himself. It was very, you know, the, the, the apartheid government was well entrenched. You know, they had the guns. You know, it, it was it was a system that rested on guns, but guns do the job. And the ANC, Mandela's ANC, had some kind of an armed liberation movement, but really it was a bit of a joke. It was pinpricks against that extraordinary monolith. And so it seems immensely unlikely. You use that, what they described Washington as the indispensable man. I think Mandela was too. As I was saying before, there was all this violence, but there was also this very serious negotiation going on for four years. I mean, public negotiation, they'd been negotiating in secret before. And, and there were people there who deserve a lot of credit for, for the outcome, that the, the, the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, very, very, very smart man, who was a lead negotiator on the ANC side. And you had Rolf Mayer, very smart guy too, uh, lead negotiator on the government team, and, you know, whole teams of people around them. And their task is worthy of admiration. They delivered the peace package, you know, the complex documents, the new constitution and so forth. It was a laborious task, but they, these guys created the package, but Mandela sold the package. That's mm. the point. I talk about Mandela as the great persuader, the great seducer, also the great salesman, which is what, you know, all successful politicians must be. And no one but Mandela in the African National Congress, even if they shared his views, no one had the ability to sell the package, to sell the idea of apartheid ending and giving way to democracy to white people. No one had that gift. There's no one else in the ANC who could have sat with General Constantin and said, listen, you know, give it a rest, General. It just wouldn't have worked. The General would have carried on, you know, fighting. And so Mandela was indeed uh, the indispensable man in, you know, what was then described as the, the South African miracle. Moving on from South Africa and moving on into the rest of the 90s and on into the new millennium, how much do you feel that his method and his example did influence other peace processes? Oh, I think it did a lot. And I think in particular, initially in Northern Ireland, which I think was, was the next big you know, peace process that the world yes. saw. I mean, for example, I don't remember what year it was, maybe, maybe 94, 95, the two warring Northern Ireland factions, Republicans and Unionists, you know, tough guys, went down to South Africa. And they were in this hotel about an hour and a half outside Cape Town, really in sort of on, on the absolute southern, southern tip of, of Africa um, by the sea. And then they were in the same hotel. <laughs> it was a sort of somewhat uneasy event, which given the amount of drinking that was going on, could have gone either way. And I think it was Cyril Ramaphosa, the current president of South Africa, the chief negotiator of the transition there in the early 90s, who went and, and spoke to them and, and said, no, no, listen, guys, I mean, you know, I look at you, you, you look exactly the same, you know, okay, Catholics, Protestants, but you're all Christians after all. As far as I can hear, you'll have exactly the same accents and way of speaking and everything. And look at us, you know, we're black, white. We've had this history 
mean, whatever oppression he tells us, all the IRA types, you know, Catholics may have experienced, I mean, forget about it. It's a teddy bear's picnic compared to what we've endured here in South Africa during the 50 years of apartheid and 300 years of white colonialism. So, you know, for heaven's sake, you know, just get on with it. Just sort it out. Don't be silly. You know, you're, you're, you're playing the fool here by, by not seeking, you know, seriously seeking peace. So I think at that level, I think that was probably an important meeting in terms of planting a, a thought. But then in terms of the actual mechanics of how South Africa made peace, sort of disciples left South Africa after the success of the, of the peace process. People who'd been involved in writing the new constitution, organizing the talks between both sides, actually spread around the world. And it was at that time after the Cold War that saw the initiation of what I call the peace industry. I mean, there's a whole lot of groups, and I know them now very well. They're out there. They go around advising people, mediating people in, in places of conflict. You know, people want to make peace. And the lessons of South Africa, you know, are like the sort of ABC. It's like the, the, the first manual. And obviously then, everybody then must apply it to their own particular circumstances, be it Northern Ireland, be it Colombia, be it Sri Lanka. But there's a template there. There are certain sort of basic ideas that hold eternal for the human condition, irrespective of your history or culture, which Mandela teaches, but, you know, the whole elaborate and intelligent way in which the peace deal was clinched in, in South Africa. And like I say, it's no accident that quite a lot of these peacemaking consultants around the world emerged from South Africa. You know, a number went to Northern Ireland, some went to Israel, Palestine. I know some have been involved in the Colombian peace process. So it was it was important, inspiring sort of emotionally and inspiration to the world, but also technically, mechanically, extraordinarily useful. And what about your own legacy of your time there? It was the mid-90s when you then moved on. And how do you feel that being there for all of that wonderful, terrible time, how it transformed you, yourself, your world outlook, and, and your, your own attitude to your work as a journalist? Well, I think maybe two things. One, the, the great privilege and good fortune was to not only to have witnessed the, the Mandela phenomenon, you know, from the front row seat, but actually to get to know him pretty well personally and to interview him many times. And there's one word that, I, that I've used a couple of times in this conversation, which is the word integrity. And I think Mandela really, you know, embodied that. And what I, and what I mean by integrity in his sense, I think why he embodied it is that there was an absolute diamond hard coherence between the message that he proclaimed publicly and his behavior privately, far away from the cameras, far away from journalists, you know, any possibility of political point scoring. If there's one word that was key, it's a word that's used so much that it almost loses value, but it's still an important word, which is the word respect. I mean, that's after all, basically what he fought for and his people fought for was to receive, have equal respect, you know, everybody irrespective of where you're born or how you're born or what color you're born or whatever. And Mandela treated everybody with equal respect. It didn't matter if it was the Queen of England, the President of the United States, the flight attendant, the person who washed the dishes in the kitchen. He was always impeccably attentive, courteous, and respectful. I could spend the next five hours giving you anecdotes to illustrate what I've just said, but take it from me that that is the case. He had a fabulous relationship with the Queen of England who adored him. But also, you know, he would go, there was a place, I'll just say one story very quickly, there's a place in Washington called Blair House, which is where visiting heads of state are put up when they come to, you know, an official or state visits. And I've got a friend, actually a former American ambassador in South Africa, who went to see the man who runs Blair House, a guy who's been in charge of running this place for the last 30 years, seen everybody, every political leader of every stripe come past, monarchs and presidents. And he said, who is the person who most struck you? And he said, Mandela. Why was it Mandela? 
he said, well, this is everyday courtesy and charm and charisma. But also, you know, he arrived first day, came for breakfast. And after finishing breakfast, he went into the kitchen and he introduced himself to all the kitchen staff. I said, hello, my name is Nelson Mandela. You know, what is your name? How are you? And thank you very much for looking after us. And that was typical of the man. Absolutely typical. And, you know, and this is a story I found out about, you know, 20 years later. This is not, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't playing to the gallery. I aspire to anything like that. I'm sure to emulate that. I'm sure I fall pathetically, tragically short. But I think that's what one should aim for. But I think politically, what I've learned from him is pragmatism. It's one word that I haven't used very much in this conversation, but Mandela was also, among his many attributes, he was an absolute pragmatist. He knew that politics is the art of the possible. He knew that, yes, wouldn't it be great if we could have, you know, wave a magic wand and everybody would be economically equal tomorrow? And let's, you know, let's take our revenge on white people to hell with them all. Yes. I mean, and, and that would have given perhaps, you know, five minutes of fleeting pleasure. And then you'd be condemned to centuries of war and, and horror as, as, you know, as the consequences of that occur. So he was he was pragmatic. And, and I think as time has gone by, for me as a journalist, I've been covering stuff, you know, since Argentina and Central America the 80s is that I've become progressively less rigid in my political views, less wedded to ideology, and much more on judging politicians on results, on whether they're actually, A, achieving their own aims in a practical, effective way, whatever those aims may be, but most of all, on whether they're actually seeking to do the best for the society where they are at a particular time. And with an understanding also that I've picked up, not just from South Africa, that one system does not fit all. And that, you know, sometimes we can be rather paternalistic without realizing it in our Western democracies, demanding that, say, X African country should immediately emulate our system of, you know, Western or, you know, Westminster or Jeffersonian type democracy. I'm more flexible in my thinking on this score than I would have been 30, 40 years ago. I think that life is more complicated and societies all have their particular historical moments. The fruits are ripe at different times. And so pragmatism is actually a very important word whose meaning I've understood much better as a consequence of observing Nelson Mandela. I'm going to move from the word pragmatism to the word kismet. I think you had only just finished a very serious project of gathering together the the many testimonies of the people who were involved in the 1995 World Cup. And I, I don't even know if the book had been actually published and for sale yet, the book Playing the Enemy, when you bumped into a very important person in a small town in Mississippi. Can you tell us the whole story? The idea of writing a book about the Rugby World Cup final really as a culmination of the whole Mandela phenomenon of the whole transition of South Africa. I mean, my book actually has got about 250 pages and it's got about three on rugby. So actually it's maybe a bit of a con of a sell there when people say it's a rugby book, I should immediately confess. But I, I wrote what you do for these nonfiction books. You write up a proposal, which you then send to your agent who then sends it around publishers in the hope that someone will bite and give you a deal. So I wrote this proposal, about 12 pages or so, and it was great. And then we, we my agent's in New York and we got a couple of offers and we went for the best one and I had a deal. So off we go, start writing the book. One day my agent calls me and says, what do you think if we send, send your proposal to Hollywood? To which my response was, oh God, these Americans are always so optimistic. Why can't they be more ironic, skeptical and 
pessimistic, like us old, old continent folk. But I said, okay, by all manner of means, send it to Hollywood, you know, what the hell. So anyway, to cut a slightly more complicated story short, about three or four months after this conversation, I was working for a Spanish paper called O País, and they told me to go to the United States to do a story on poverty in the Deep South. I decided that I, I should identify one town rather than do something generic and go to one town and anatomize that one town. I discovered there were hundreds of very poor towns in the South, and really by a chance, I alighted upon a city, a town rather, called Clarksdale in Mississippi. I could have chosen any one of a couple of hundred others. Anyway, I flew to New York where I met my friend who was the editor of the New York Times who gave me a contact, someone in Mississippi in Clarksdale who would be able to help me with my story. Um, and it was sort of Mr. Big in Clarksdale. I flew from New York to Chicago to Memphis. There was a terrible delay as the plane broke down and I arrived about a day after I should have arrived. It was a real mess. And I arrived in Memphis, which is a town where I picked up a rental car and from then I was going to drive from there I was going to drive to Clarksdale about 200 miles away. And I rang Mr. Big as I was getting into my rental car at Memphis Airport. And he said, oh yeah, look, I'm just coming on this highway you're, you're going along. Meet me at the next Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I stop at the next Kentucky Fried Chicken. And sure enough, a minute later, this Mr. Big, who was actually a very large man, greeted me in a very courteous, gentlemanly, southern gent sort of way and said, look, you follow me on down and I'll phone you every now and again and point out maybe historical landmarks that might be interesting for you for your work. Anyway, so we drive on and he phones me. On the third or fourth phone call, he says, by the way, Morgan Freeman's coming to town today. And I said, wow, that's interesting. I'm not making any connections. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm going to meet Morgan Freeman. How exciting. Love his movie. Love Shawshank Redemption. And just before we, we arrived at Clarksdale, Mr. Big takes a turn off and we go down and we're in this very, very small aerodrome, little tiny airport. And there's this small jet out of which steps Morgan Freeman, who's actually a plane pilot. He actually piloted this plane himself. It's his plane. And he steps off the plane and I'm introduced to him. And it's the usual sort of stuff, you know, well, Mr. Freeman, I love your movies. And he's kind of bored as hell and, you know, shakes my hand and, you know, yet again. And off we go. And that's it. And then I go off with Mr. Big, who's terrific. He gives me the, all these contacts of my story, the soup kitchens, the nuns who look after the poor, the prison. And he says he's going to come and meet me that evening. He'll pick me up and take me out for dinner. I said, fantastic. But about six that evening, he shows up at the place where I'm staying in Clarksville. I get into his car, front seat, passenger seat. And in the back is Morgan Freeman, who's reading a paper, uh, which was astonishing. And I sort of turned around and said, you know, hello, good, good evening. And he barely acknowledged my presence. He kind of raised an eyebrow and carried on reading his paper. And so we drove off. Mr. Big showed me all the properties he owned in Clarksdale, pretty much everything. And took me to this vast, cotton-picking era, classical southern mansion where he lived. We go in there and Freeman and I sit down in the living room and Mr. Big goes into the kitchen to get a bottle of Californian Sauvignon Blanc wine. I'm left with Freeman, who's very laconic, as I say word. And I suddenly have this moment of inspiration. I say, Mr. Freeman, this is your lucky day. I've got a movie for you. Whereupon he raises not one eyebrow, but who? And says, oh, really? What's it about? And I thought, well, I better just cut to the chase of this guy. He's clearly not you know, one for the chatter. So I said, it's about an event that captures the essence of Mandela's genius and the essence of the South African miracle. He says, oh, you mean the rugby game? I nearly fell off my chair. I thought, you know, Mr. Prima, how can you make this connection? And he explained to me that he'd actually bought the film rights to Mandela's official autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, some years before. He'd hired lots of screenwriters to try and adapt this vast work into a workable screenplay. Had failed. And I said, yes, yes, okay, I get all this, but you still haven't explained the connection. Oh, no, no, no. He said, no, I've, I've read your book proposal. He said, no, amazing. He'd read oh, my book proposal and was clearly interested. We went out for dinner and, and Freeman transformed from sort of laconic to loquacious and poor old Mr. Big didn't get a word in edgeways and it was me and Morgan Freeman rattling away like a couple of old buddies. And at the end of it, he gave me his email address and winked and said, I think we're going to be in touch again. And sure enough, his production company bought the rights to my unwritten book still, just the proposal. A screenwriter came out from Hollywood to see me here in Barcelona where 
I, where I now live, and the mum was living then. This 2006. The, the screenwriter spends a week sucking every bit of Mandela out of my brain. Imagine this conversation multiplied over you know a whole week. And then he goes off and writes the screenplay, and I write the book. And then 2007, the screenplay is written, so is the book. But Hollywood is littered with screenplays that never get anywhere. One in a thousand makes it into the movie. And then I get a call from my agent in New York who says, are you sitting down, John? And I said, yes, I'm sitting down. He says, well, Clint Eastwood is reading the screenplay. I said, oh my God, this is just too much. Just go away. I can't handle this. And a month later, she calls me and says, are you sitting down again? Yes. Clint Eastwood wants to make a movie. And when Clint Eastwood wants to make a movie, a movie is made. I then went down to the filming, mostly done in Cape Town. I got to know Matt Damon, Eastwood and Morgan Freeman, but especially Morgan Freeman, with whom I've stayed in touch. I've seen him again since in New York. We've actually went to Rwanda once to see some gorillas in the mountains, would you believe? And every time we meet, we're just, we're just astounded at this, what you call kismet moment. Because had by this extraordinary sequence of chance events, had we not bumped into each other in Clarksville, Mississippi, of all places, you know, arriving at exactly the same time, me choosing it over a couple of hundred other options, my plane breaking down, it's just amazing. And because had we not met, you know, it's entirely possible, indeed likely, that the movie Invictus would never have been made. What I love is, is an insight into just what a perilous world it is for the author and their brushes with Hollywood. I'd go much further than that, perilous world of the author. I mean, just perilous world mm. full stop. I mean, I think one thing that we, you know, we're forever analysing, and here we are analysing Mandela's genius and everything else, and we analyse politics, and we analyse football games, and we analyse love relationships, and we analyse everything, and we continually fail to attribute the importance that luck merits in everything that we do. It's as if we sort of in denial about it. I mean, luck is the very fact that you and I are sitting here, you know, doing this podcast, and that you happen to be, you know, embarking on this particular calling of the podcast. I mean, I'm sure there are a whole number of chance events in your life that had one or two of those things not happened, you wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here. And it just, you know, and Mandela too. I mean, Mandela, he was this country boy. He was destined to be a sort of local rural chieftain who might have lived out his life in complete obscurity. But when he was 21 years old, the local chief said he had to marry some girl in the village that he didn't want to marry. And and to, fl- to flee and arrange marriage, usually it's the female who wants to flee. No, in this case, the man, Mandela, wanted to flee, fled and arranged marriage and went to Johannesburg. And everything began there. So had this girl not arrived, or had the, the, the chief decided that this, not this girl, but another one was the one they should marry, we might very well never have heard of Nelson Mandela. So I think that ultimately, I think it's worth pausing to reflect the lesson from my, you know, remarkable story of meeting Morgan Freeman and the making of the film of Victor's, that uh, if everyone pauses and honestly looks back on their lives, they see the degree to which chance plays a, a determining role. To, to, and it does so to a quite, if you think about it, quite alarming degree. John, I can't think of a better way for what is supposed to be a history and popular culture history podcast. I can't think of a better way to end than what you've just said. That is a wonderful <laughs> summation of what Good. we in the Zeros podcast are trying to get people to understand is exactly this, not to look back at history as a as inevitable path, but one f- littered with what you've just said. I, I'm absolutely, I'm so, so grateful for you giving your time to us today and for being such an important eyewitness to such a momentous time in human history. John, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm always very glad to, to evangelise on, on Nelson Mandela and his works. And honestly, thank you again to John for taking the time out to join us over Zoom from Barcelona. Absolutely loved every minute of talking to John. Very, very grateful indeed. John's website is simply johncarlin.eu. 
So go there to read more about him and learn more about his writings and his life experiences. As I said, the two books that I read to prepare to interview John were Playing the Enemy and Knowing Mandela. And of course, you can also enjoy the film Invictus, which you heard about, heard him talking about how that came into being. So yeah, as I said again, get more into this. It's fascinating. I learned so much from from preparing and then talking to John. Absolutely brilliant. What else to tell you? Um, we really are going to have to take quite a break for a while. The Just the amount of time it takes to make these episodes. I don't have that time. We don't have that time. I am planning more bonus episodes for the autumn. I'm hoping to do one about the Balkans and or the Soviet Union in 1990. I certainly need to do one about the invasion of Kuwait. And we are planning one on Ireland, specifically the um, coming into office of President Mary Robinson in 1990. And of course, we still have to do a kind of roundup episode with all the with all the guys uh, to end out the series. But for now, I have to say thanks for listening to all the episodes. Please like and subscribe and tell other people about this. And we will be back in the autumn. And in the meantime, if you love our theme tune, you can thank Tony Wright, a.k.a. Mr. Verse Chorus Verse. And you can get all his music and you can buy it at versechorusverse.bandcamp.com. So thanks for listening, and I hope that you will hear from us again well before Christmas. Hey, no, 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 no,